Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name is Gary Barone and I'm joined as ever by club historian Rick Lanville. Hi Rick. All right mate, how are you? I'm very good and I'm unusually excited about this episode because it features one of my all-time great Chelsea heroes, the <laughs> wonderful wee Pat, Pat Nevin, one of the great icons of that side in the mid-1980s. Oof, absolutely for so many Chelsea fans and probably the most articulate footballer personally I've ever met on top of that. Um, so today, especially after the season we Chelsea supporters have just endured, we thought it'd be insightful to ask Pat about the behind-the-closed-door psychology. So what is the dressing room like during a particularly good season? as we've had quite recently, and as he enjoyed from his debut in 1983-1984 with promotion, or a spectacularly bad one, like we've just had. And he also endured just four years later in 1987-88. Yes, and as the first campaign finished with the joy of promotion and the last one concluded with the disaster of relegation, we can think of no one better place to represent the player's perspective. That's right. Um, but before Pat's words of wisdom, and they are wise, though, I thought I'd better, uh, admittedly quite with a heavy heart, put last season into historical perspective to show just how bad it was. Uh, but also with some spooky parallels to this season uh, from around 100 years ago. Quite. Do, 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 do. Now, Rick, are you really sure about this? I mean, some people might just be about to sit down for a nice meal. <laughs> We must, we must. I mean, look, Gary, without acknowledging the lows, you cannot appreciate the highs quite so much. Mm. Um, I mean, just think about our uh, travails in the Champions League, for example. Um, and to begin with the season just past, 2022-23, uh, we stooped about as low as the club has for decades. 12th place, just to rattle off some statistics was our worst final position in the Premier League since 14th in 1993-94, at the dawn of the Chelsea Revolution under Glenn Hoddle, of course. And the first bottom half of the table finished since 1995-96, which concluded that was Hoddle's last campaign as manager. Uh, last season, we found the net just 38 times across 38 league matches, easily the worst return of the modern era, and suffered a catastrophic drop of 30 points in comparison to the previous campaign. We failed to beat any Premier League side in the top six, which is finished as the lowest of the three West London clubs, and surrendered our long unbeaten league record against Brighton and went out of both domestic cups at the first opportunity. And that's an indignity we'd not suffered since 1988-1989. Uh, Okay, so it really was a pretty bad season. Bloody on the awful. other hand, we have been relegated six times before <laughs> in history, as well as being promoted on seven occasions. So I guess in perspective, maybe it's not our worst performance of, of all time. Ever, GB, you guessed correctly. Of course, it's all relative because we have, um, you know, last season we had so many great players in the squad. So it's the sort of the disappointment that was uh, so complete. But our most depressing seasons, personally, I think, were 1982-83, that we've touched on quite often in this pod, 
where we finished an historically low 18th in uh, the second tier of English football and we're close to dropping to the third uh, for different reasons, 1923-24. And this is the parallel I'm talking about with last season. So drum roll and brickbacks, please, for a Chelsea manager and squad who 99 years ago earned just 36 points from 42 Division One games played. So that would have been 45 in the um, three points for a win era. Back then it was only two points for a win. So you add that up and you get 45 rather than 36. But it's still pretty poor, 45 from 42. Um, And more pertinently to the season that's just gone, really, we only found the net 31 times in 42 games. And um, in, you know, we know what we got last season it was 38 and 38 so that's the comparison uh even worse but i guess in mitigation for last season we just come out the turmoil of the pandemic and there was that ridiculous in my opinion unique mid-season world cup <laughs> and those sanctions against abramovich after the invasion of ukraine meant a change of ownership as well as the loss of all that senior personnel mm. so what excuses did we have in 23-24 well i think that's all Fair comment on last season. But what's weird is how many similarities there were almost 100 years ago. For starters, the club had been mired in off-field controversies, <laughs> very similar, to do with uh, ownership of Stamford Bridge, the freehold, which was disputed, and some really overpriced stadium redevelopment work that had been carried out by one of the club's own directors, um, Joseph Mears company. And in fact, eventually, uh, an irate Football League inquiry that was put together because of this controversy, uh, imposed a big shake-up of the club's board of directors, which diluted what they saw as the Mears' unhealthy uh, influence on it. Everyone seemed to be connected to the Mears, or work for the Mears, or be, uh, you know, an in-law or something like that. So, to be honest, 100 years ago, we were sanctioned. So, history repeated itself a century later. Blimey, same old Chelsea then. Well, precisely. And again, um, in comparison the two sets of statistics from last season and 99 years ago, um, back in uh, 1923-24, on the field a century ago, uh, the record of goals conceded was 53 and that compared compared favorably even to Sunderland who finished third so remember last season we for a long period of time we had third best goals conceded record in the Premier League and it was the same in 1923-24 and uh, it was this it was an impoverishing 31 goals that we scored uh, in the 42 games that would do for us back then um, that was what really killed us. Mm. Because if you recall, in those days, in the event of a tie on points on the league table, the hierarchy of the clubs would be determined by uh, goal average, which was dividing goals scored by goals uh, conceded. Mm. And, um, and back then, ours was really bad, and it led to our second ever relegation because of an inferior goal average. Uh, and um, so that's the upshot, really. 
So that season, we didn't have a fantastic Clive Walker late goal like we did in 1983. We never got that in 24. Well, no, we certainly didn't. So, and in fact, <laughs> it's almost like, um, well, I'll tell the story because before the final match, final league game of the season against Man City in 1924, it was clear to everyone that only a kind of a miraculous win margin, probably double figures would suffice that would keep us in the uh, in the top flight. But even the weather sometimes has it in for Chelsea. Uh, so the pensioners had scored three times, right? So you need to get double figures. And he scored three times in the opening 15 minutes and you look on track for this sensational survival act. And then an almighty rainstorm suddenly engulfed Stamford Bridge, quagmiring the pitch so people could hardly run. And frankly, uh, creating chaos and virtually ending any hope of uh, of succeeding. As the great Chelsea historian uh, Scott Cheshire wrote, the midget Chelsea forwards faded away, almost sunk from view, and the final score was 3-1. <laughs> So the rain killed us. The Blues were relegated in 21st place and Middlesbrough, come on to them, finished bottom. Well, 23-24 sounds like a really bad season. I'm quite glad I wasn't around for that one. (laughs) But but were there any warning signs, though? Is there a lesson from history? Great question, actually, because um, we'd actually made the season before, uh, well, quite apart from the all this off-field stuff that I mentioned, Directors getting sanctioned, basically. Um, but the season before the job, we'd actually made a brilliant start uh, to the league campaign and had topped the league for the first time in our history in September 1922. But then, hello, old friends, injuries and loss of form created a winless run of 11 games and then a goal drought throughout November hit us. And then finally... One win in the last 14. Hold on a minute. That's identical to our (laughs) run in in all competitions last season. And we only narrowly avoided the drop in 1923. So you could say, near miss, what are you going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah, and clearly whatever we did, it wasn't right or it wasn't enough. But even taking that into account, Rick, I still say 82-83 was worse. Yeah. That goal that we discussed before with Clive Walker when he came on the pod a while back seems to become more important with every passing year. I'd agree with that. I think it's it is it seems to be right up there with most people that know the club's history. Think it's definitely in the top five of our, the most important goals in our in our history. And where where would we have been uh, if we hadn't got? Uh, if we'd gone down to the third level of English football for the first uh, first time, would we have come back? Would be would we be like a kind of a a Warsaw or a Stockport, or you know, would we even have uh, given our difficult financial circumstances? We could even have gone out of the league. We could have just kept going. Absolutely, but things did change, didn't they? And that all brings us very neatly into the era of our very special guest, a man who writes as well as he used to play, the quite brilliant Pat Nevin. The famous CFC will be back with more great stories from Chelsea history after this short break. 
Bird Dogs make you look good. That's right, Bird Dogs stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restrictive cotton. Bird Dogs uses anti-stink sweat wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. So look, I've got a pair. Dan's got a pair. Nick's got a pair. We actually love them. But not only do you get Bird Dogs right now, if you buy, you get a free tumbler. That's right. You get a free Yeti tumbler. All you have to do is go to birddogs.com forward slash pool, P-O-O-L. Enter the promo code P-O-O-L for a free Yeti style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com forward slash pool for a free Yeti style tumbler. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off. We promise you. So Pat Nevin, welcome to the famous CFC. It's brilliant to have you on here. How are you bearing up promoing your book, Football and How to Survive It, your third tome? Fantastic. Um, well, first, it's just it's, it's an honour that, that someone's actually gone and published a book, you know, and thought it was good enough to publish. Uh, you know, yourself, right? When you write something, you put love and time and effort into it, mm. um, and it, you hope it's any good. Um <laughs> Uh, the first one seemed to go really quite well. They were, the publishers were very excited, but more important than, than that, the, the feedback from the readers was was fabulous. So um, it's kind of quite, quite confident and happy to put the second one out fairly quickly. It, it kind of is two and two years because it's dead on two years since the, the hardback. Then you get the paperback year after that, and then I'm back on the hardback of the first yeah. one, um, just the way the publishers do it. Um, but uh, the, the going around the country in a different city every day at the moment is is brilliant because you get such a lift when you you know you go into the event and it's great and people are fun and anyone who goes to a book event is cool right that's full stop I've learned <laughs> that and um, if you if you're a reader and you make the effort to go and see somebody at a book event you're not going to be an ass <laughs> you're going to be okay exactly so um, you tend to meet good people um, and it's everyone been completely different that I've done. So, you know, whether it's St Andrews or Brighton, you know, the, and, and those were three days apart with with the uh, you know, uh, Merseyside in between and Glasgow, <laughs> etc. So I've, I've been everywhere. So, you know, the really memorable things. And when I slow down, when it's finished, and uh, it's a couple of weeks time, um, I'll be really trying to remember what actually happened because <laughs> you can't think back. I mean, in the midst of all this. You know, I had a couple of days off, so what did I do? Went to Oslo, as you do, yeah. to watch Scotland play. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I was I was working there for five line, and that was amazing. Scotland result, and then I did the game uh, the other night, and it's just because you're a bit. I'll be honest with you, like whisper it between us, it's a bit tiring. You're just traveling all the time, different room every night. Yeah, uh, if you lose a night's sleep, which you do, it did in Oslo. And then lost another night's sleep last night because the Scotland game was yeah. an hour and 40 minute delay. And then I had to do five live crack of dawn. Anyway, it sounds like moans. It's not moans. It's really interesting, but it's it's intense. It really it does is. take it out of you. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't got my copy yet. I'm looking forward to, to reading it when I do. And I'm expecting the usual brilliant insights as one of our most erudite former players. And really what we wanted to talk on this episode was about after the season that Chelsea have just endured uh, and seasons a few years before that, successful ones, the kind of psychology of the dressing room that we're not privy to. So I wanted to start by talking about the dressing room you arrived in in 1983. We just avoided relegation to the third division. 
and you came in as a uh, a youngster full of hope did you have a sense of a legacy of the sort of memories of that narrow escape and that the team hadn't performed well in the squad that you joined um not a thing (laughs) (laughs) absolutely nothing blank the history it's the past and footballers footballers have got to be like that you just think we're looking forward that was then this is now a whole bunch of us are new people um i had and a knowledge of the history of the, the Chelsea team from the 70s, I'd, I'd go that far, which and a real nice noise to the level my first ever football strip was a Chelsea strip as a kid, which is saying something as a Celtic supporting kid in East End of Glasgow who then buys an all blue strip for his first strip. <laughs> Bit weird that one. Um, but I was so in, impressed by like a lot of people, Chelsea in 1978, you know, cool as cool can be. Yes. Um, but, you know, that was a history I kind of knew about. Even though Chelsea had tried to buy me the year before I, I came, I had other things I was doing. I was playing for Mountain Clyde at the time. I turned Chelsea down for a year. Um, so I came into that dressing room. Having left a really good one at Clyde, where just normal working men who played part-time football. So no divas, no expectations, really good. Um, and it was quite intense. It wasn't another intense experience because... I was coming to a different culture. Um, I obviously wouldn't necessarily fit in, you know, because I had different interests than most of the players. Um, that didn't mean I, dis- I disliked them uh, or couldn't go on with them, but you know, I just I was much, very much an outsider. But the fact that there was quite a few Scots there um, and then a few uh, Welsh as well, eventually, kind of helped. Um, and also the kind of local lads, you know, the Colin Paces, the Bumsteads, you know, Dale Jasper, um, you know, Canis, Dubbers, you know, all, all of them were kind of just local London lads, like, and I kind of, could, well, I just knew I'd be cool with them. City boys are city boys, whatever you yeah, are. exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. So all that was cool, humour was cool. But it it was definitely um, much, much easier because we started winning right away. I mean, we just flew out the blocks. So there would be no point. I mean, I wasn't there the day we won 5-0 the first game, but there's no point when I was thinking about last season, if we've just won 5-0. And we've just... I mean, one of your Patesy might, or the Bumstead might, the, the guys that have gone through it, um, but they've just seen a whole job lot of players. Of course, Johnny Hollins, who addressed some of you, he was one of them as well. And we all come in. And, you know, it happens with football clubs. Even if a club you've been at and had a bad season, see next season, gone. Because <laughs> <laughs> if last season was a great season, that's gone as well. That's the other side of it, isn't it? And it has to be this way because the, the psychology of it is, um, I know that old, the old cliche is you're only as good as your last game or the mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that is, it's, it's, not, it's, it's a cliche because it's completely and utterly true. So if you have a stinker one week or the next week, you're not playing. That's it. You're out. If you just think of this season, last season, if you two game good games at the start of this season, okay, do Everything's good. Everything's fine. You know, you move on and be cool about it. That's the mark of the professional mindset, isn't it? Though, is that always look forward, always, uh, you know, forgiven, you know, triumph and disaster. You walk on from it and you think, well, what's the next game? What am I going to be doing in that? There's very interesting things in that, which obviously I've thought about a lot over the years. I mean, it is almost Jesuitical, the way it's absolutely drummed into you, that 
There is no point in looking back. In fact, it, very, very quickly, as a football, it becomes incredible, an incredible guilt trip to look back. I mean, real guilt trip. It took me years and years and years to look back over my career. And I'm writing this, these two books now about my career. Um, my career wasn't yesterday. <laughs> it was a while ago. In all case, I was busy and I had other jobs and I was doing other interesting things. But there was also this wee guilt nagging thing in the back of your mind, which is as soon as you look back, you're saying, that's back, that's it, it's gone. And there is a learning process to come, to come out of that, you know, indoctrination and say, actually, it's okay to be cool about the past. Don't live in it. You know, but say, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's all right. Yeah, good friends there. Nice thing. Smile. Carry on with, with the now and tomorrow. Um, but it is a weird thing that I had to make myself think of what the da- dynamics were in that dressing room because I deliberately moved on. But when I started thinking about them, they were incredible. Uh, it's quite funny. I mean, there's a kind of line in the first book where I, I do say, you know, punch-ups were not unusual, you know, and I can remember David Speedy fighting with Colin Lee. I can remember David Speedy fighting with Kerry Dixon. I can remember David Speedy fighting with... And it's basically a line of David Kerry Speedy's Kerry and Canna's having a naked tussle in the bath. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, that, 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 that painted a wee picture for a few people, I think, that one. Um, so, but absolutely true. So, um, but what we had was a good enough spirit for most of the time to think, yeah, okay, this aggression will come out. Um this intense feeling will come out. Um, but we were playing again tomorrow and we're going to have to be working together. And at the, and at the extreme end, there may be one or two people you don't really particularly gone with or like particularly much. Most people in offices have that, you know. I don't like calling from accounts. I still like calling from accounts. It's a great comedy. It's serious, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you might not like somebody. But it's fine. You still have to work with them. And you certainly should be professional with them. And uh, what I found in that group, they were they were really well linked. The manager, actually, now you're saying it, really interesting. I remember talking to John Neal really early on, and he said to me, look, we're going to get the right people in. I'm thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> it was not, we're going to have the people with the right attitude in here. And it doesn't matter if they're a good player. They're not going to be here. And, I, and it, it was kind of saying to me, I know you're 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 okay, kid. I know you've got the right attitude, kid. Yeah, going to get lots of people around about that are the same. And to be fair, Patsy was, Bunners was, Spackers was. You know, a lot of good personalities around there. Um, I often talk about maybe the most important person in dressing was Tony McAndrew. Yes, and you know, I always I get the quizzical looks, and I get the yeah, yeah, it's you just being different. But no, I look very closely at the psychology of it and the way that a leader must be somebody who not only leads, doesn't need to be the best player, but he needs to be sure the best example and get the best out of everybody for the group, not for the individual. And Tony was nailed on. He was perfect at that. And uh, that sort of, that, so the serious side of it was interesting. The other side of it, the fun side, um, I, I, I started having quite a nice time quite quickly because the surreal skates and bumps that and uh, I think I think they decided after a while that I was way, a wee bit weird that they tried to outweird me. You were a project, <laughs> I suppose. No, no, I think they were trying to weird me. They were just like, right, if he's strange, we're going to be even stranger. <laughs> um, they didn't try and mold me in any way. They actually found me quite funny in a curio in a, a kind of odd sort of way. Yeah. Uh, 
but it's really nice when you go down and you bump into people that you know you just say actually never met you before i've been in your company for a week and i think we'll be great we'll be great mates um and that's certainly the pates and bobs did and you know I, I just felt that right away most of the rest lads got in perfectly well with um in that first season um but those two were the ones that i thought because of the sophistication of humor that's the thing that got me but how can how can john neil uh, you know best with all the best intentions you have to be a really good judge of character to know how someone's going to fit into that mix in the dressing room and also over the course of a season with the ups and downs how they're going to uh, embrace the their bumps along the road and you know how do how did they anticipate that do you think and also how did they work on it when there were issues uh, that needed addressing the best managers are, are great psychologists mm. i've worked with some of the best in the world you know ever and that sounds a wee bit up there doesn't it but yeah i have worked under charlie ferguson i've worked under jock steen and um, some absolute geniuses of that ilk and they test you that's what they do. They, they don't, it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's, it's quite, I mean, with Steen, it was extraordinary how he would test you. He would set up situations you, that you couldn't imagine that could be set up to find how, who, how you would react, um, only to, to know that if he was going to trust you going forward. Um, and it was brilliant at it. Um, the classic one was, I was playing for Scotland under-21s and he, battered in the dressing room at halftime in a game against Spain, just shouting and bawling and screaming at me, telling me, I mean, expletives everywhere, inches from my face. And he's a godlike figure yeah. in Scotland, and certainly my family is a Celtic supporting family. Yeah. Infamously, it was uh, the three most important ones are God, the Pope, and Jockstein, but not necessarily in that order. And <laughs> absolutely was the case in those days with it. Celtic fans. Um, and I remember he battered me up. So I, was like, I, mean, I was really young and a kind of unusual sitting reading Dostoevsky. And he and he hammered into me. And I went out in the second half and I could have been crushed. I thought, no, bugger you, mate. I'll show you. I don't care who you are. And I went out and I didn't, I played all right, but I showed them that, yeah, you're not affecting me. Get lost. I'll do what I think right. And right after the game, he walks up and goes, Great from start to finish, we man. And I, I, I hadn't realised it had all been a test. He's using an international game. John Neal did that in quite subtle ways, really subtle ways. I mean, I, I would notice when he was doing it to me because he'd do the team talk. And at the end of the team talk, he'd say, um, get the body part and you'll win. Now, this is a kid in the corner. We kind of skinny guy just down from Glasgow. He's a bit weird. And he's piling that pressure on me. And he could just see me going, that's all right. <laughs> he knew you could take it. That's the point. But how would he know that? I'm, I'm, I look quite introverted when I was younger. I was, you probably remember. quite shy looking, et cetera. But he could see the kind of steel that was in there. Um, even though, because a lot of skillful players then were seen as untrustworthy. Yeah. You know, but flamboyant. Flaky, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think he did, because Chelsea watched me for over a year, and Ian McNeil had talked to me, um, quite a few times over that period of time and they talked to Craig Brown who was the manager at, Scott, at Clyde at time Team Scotland. Yeah, I was going to ask that how much kind of due diligence we call it now did they do on the players like yourself well they'd done it in a human way 
Mm. I, don't, I don't think they're such a human way now. Um, but certainly they would have asked everyone. They were, they would have gone, I'm absolutely sure, and checked out with Scotland under 18s and under 21s, which I was breaking into, found out what it was like there. I was playing and scoring all the time, so that kind of helped. But um, they, they would test us in various things. They always, and they'd done little tests in lots of players. And I can remember spotting one or two of them where, you know, you're doing a wee bounce game and you took one, subbed a player in a bounce game. Like, you generally don't do that just to see the reaction. Are you right? So, because what is the right reaction then? Is it, oh, okay, then, Boston, stand outside. Or is it go, what? You know, right? Which you might have been in your rights to do. If, yeah, exactly. You know. So he never did it to me. But I remember him doing it to one player who absolutely gave the wrong reaction. I mean, it's, it was just a really intriguing test because he went, you can stick your effing club up your... Right, and walked off. And walked <laughs> and jumped in his car. Now that's demonstrably the wrong reaction. You don't give up your teammates like that. You fight for yourself, but you fight your teammates as well. There, was, there were tests, I could see them doing it, and I weren't, they weren't all the time. Just now he'd little, do a little tweak. I mean, he tested me once. Um, it was Aberystwyth, it was a game, and he said, I'm... Pre-season. I'm yeah, pre-season. He said, well, I'm, you're on the bench tonight. And I went, I'm a great form. <laughs> what enough for? And he went, no, no, just... Uh, they never say rest of that. He said, no, no, somebody else is getting a chance tonight. I went, oh... I know I'm in good form, so why are you dropping me? And he went, well, maybe a touch. I've just, look, I've just been in the pitch, doing the job, and I said, I mean, seriously, I'm not going to touch. But I was so polite about it, yeah. really, really firm. And, it, and he kind of, it was after a minute, he goes, we'll sit in the bench anyway, Pat, but well done. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, what? What are you talking about? And it was as if he, so it was good at it. And each player will have their own individual test. So if you've got good psychologists and people are good at building it and good people that know if he's a wrong end and he's bad for the group, if he's not playing, if he's left out and he's poisonous, and he's, if you're good enough to be able to get, spot that quickly and get rid of him or spot that and mould him in such a way that he's usable for a while, that, that's the real clever bit. That is... That's what Ferguson was brilliant at. He had some new characters and he moulded them and, until they exploded and then he got rid of them. Yeah. Well, obviously, it, there's the two dynamics, really. There's the internal dynamic of each player, each individual, and what they want and what they how they think they're playing. And then there's the, the team dynamic as well. And you, your first season, Chelsea had a brilliant season and were promoted from Division 2 to Division 1 and then had two fantastic seasons, really. Uh, in back in the top flight, finishing sixth in uh, two seasons in succession, and then it kind of went off. Now, what from an outsider's point of view, you know, we're not privy to the training ground. What what goes right and what goes wrong in terms of individuals and teams in good and very bad seasons? Well, actually, oddly enough, that with my two books, you can actually see it happening at Chelsea, Everton, Tramway Rovers. Mm. And to some degree, Motherwell, right? Over the books, you can actually see that precise thing happening. And why should, why should it happen? Look at the same, the same players, or mostly the same players, or you've bought better ones to add to what you've got. Um, 
there's a there's, if there was one or two reasons it would be great wouldn't it <laughs> we could all fix it exactly we could sell it we could sell that for a lot of money now yes and uh, if it was when, when you start thinking even just the numbers if you've got 20 people are trying to get a game right that's 20 relationships that's not 20 relationships that's i've got one with 20 you you've got one with 20 other people 19 other people and it goes down that that's a lot of manageable relationships you only need to get three or four badly wrong and it's poison right mm. that's hard yeah that's hundreds of relationships you've got there right so you need to make sure you've got them right or as many of them right um as you possibly can you also need to know football careers are short peaks are short mm. with a lot of people and um, certainly with teams, it can be very, very short. So you need to know when a, a player is just dipping over. And you can you can you move him on then? Or, you know, is his attitude changing from, oh, I'm so hungry to, hey, I'm great. You know, and that's very common. That's that's just human nature. Yeah. Because not, not all do. I mean, Frank Lampard never changed, did he? He was just always exactly the same and he was always great. His attitude was always perfect. But no, you always look for them. They're the, they're the exceptions, them ones, right? No, not many people play five, six, seven, eight hundred games, right? <laughs> it's actually unusual. So being able to see all those things, um, I have to admit that the changing manager makes a difference. Because guys change manager. And I don't know of just less, 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 I don't know why I can't speak. Lost, Holly. Just lost. Um, and I adored them. And I've written a lot about Holly. Um, yeah, he's a lovely man. And, 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 and exactly. And I had a lot of time for him. And I wrote these books before even Holly was getting ill. That was noticeably ill. And so there's no, it's not a sympathy thing. I, I, I adored the guy. Yeah. And I had so much time for him. It didn't work because it was a different style. And that style didn't work. What well with that group of players? That style may have worked well with a different group of players. So but also his relationship, John. When John Hollies went from first team coach, where he's one of the lads and the kind of link and a, a, a support for the players, good almost cop. like a shop steward kind of. I know he was a good cop. He did yeah, good cop. <laughs> exactly. But going from that to suddenly negotiating contracts and having to be the bad cop. Uh, he I, he told me he didn't like doing that. He found it really difficult. It's probably why Holly and I got in so well, because in the end, I became a chief executive. And I hated that side of it as well. And I, just, yeah. I, knew, I think it's I knew long before I did the job that it wasn't my, my personality. But um, I was intrigued to try it. You know, I, I had a go at it. Uh, and it was all right. I could do it. Fine. It wasn't enjoyable. Simple as that. Um, but what that happened in each club I went to, and it had, each time it had a really bad effect on me personally. Um, surely, and before the old manager's in, I play every week, every single week, never ever drop. Um, new manager comes in, suddenly shaky peg. Um, happened ever exactly the same. Mm. How gentle to man, uh, exactly the same. Trying there, uh, Johnny King was replaced by John Aldridge. And you're not suddenly a bad player. No. <laughs> That's not how it works. It's just somebody, and, and there are multitude of reasons why one player's dropped, right? So the manager might not like your style, might feel threatened by you, might think, actually, I want somebody who's cheaper than him and I can get two players for the price of him. It might be a million things. 
of a different vision for the team, isn't it? That's yeah, you may you may play a different system. Doesn't, there's a million different things, right? Then you multiply that by all the players, right? So you have to do it. That's when you start really shifting. You're shifting the whole thing. And try to keep that thing ticking over that was going so incredibly well. And the real big thing is trying to, to keep it ticking over, but he'll have his own vision and want to change it. How many managers do you ever remember in your entire life come in to a successful team and say, oh, last guy was great. I'm just going to do the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> ever heard that phrase? Because it's actually a perfectly reasonable, sensible thing to say. Yeah. If you've come in and that manager's going upwards and onwards or whatever. <laughs> it's never been said. I mean, but if you go to a company, some companies will say this company's going a great way and he's done a great job and we'll move on. Um, so there is the psychology of football as being, you know, so competitive and winners and, you know, self selfish people as well, um, of the vast majority. And maybe that's why when you stick some to the holly at the, at the helm, it's hard for them because it's not in the personality. It doesn't help but too that um, sometimes the collective can get into a, a mindset like the, your last season, the, when we were we kind of stumbled into relegation um, and we encountered things that were really unusual, like the, going into a playoff. That was, uh, it only been around for a couple of years. We, were, we ended up being the only team ever to get relegated by the playoffs. You know, now the playoffs are really positive and stuff. But you'd gone through that whole league campaign thinking that you're going to play that requisite number of matches that you do in the league. And then all of a sudden this bolt-on happens. I mean, that must have been, as again, something that, you know... I, I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was okay because, you know, you, you knew the rules at the start. You know, your bottom four was going to... Bottom three were going down and the fourth bottom was going to go in the playoffs. We are miles away from bottom three. You know, we were seven, eight points, something like that. We were also joint in points with three teams above us or two yes. or three teams above us, right? It was just ludicrous set, set of circumstances. We had unbelievable bad luck with injuries, goalkeeping things. It was a multitude. Yeah, Eddie Neddy, of course, with that terrible injury in his last, you know, when was that? Halloween, I think, wasn't it? Halloween 87 against Oxford. I think you scored the winner. We, ne we never, ever, ever really fully recovered and got a goalkeeper of his standard because he was brilliant. Mm. And if you think about people take goalkeepers for granted sometimes. So you see one one nil and Kerry scored a good goal, right? Or I've scored one or whatever. And you we got the headlines. Eddie's just made two saves that saved us a game. We don't lost two one, right? And it happens all the time. That and Eddie was doing that quite a bit. It may be just one absolute brown save in a game, but we get the points instead of not getting the points. Um, but when he wasn't there well, those saves weren't there anymore. Those world-class saves weren't there to the same degree. So Eddie was a massive, massive mess. There's also another thing where, for me, what I found was I started seeing a lot of people, less people wanting to go on the ball, want to take it in dangerous areas. Uh, I Obviously, I went to the ball all the time. That's quite clear if you've ever seen me play. And I would, I would check it out of that sort of stuff. I always wanted to feel as if I was the one that would make the difference and you always got it. <clears throat> but you would see that because you don't want to be the guy that's always remembered for one thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do remember, you remember the 4-4 game against Sheffield Wednesday. Ugh. Fabulous game. Absolutely brilliant. 
<laughs> if you're too groovy. You conceded the penalty for the equaliser at 4-4. And, exactly. and, and in actual fact, it's because he made a tackle. Yeah. He's big enough to go and make it. Now, that's what we've got within our psyche in the British game, or certainly supporting it. That's in the psyche which you say, right, okay, we'll remember you for that. And we'll bring that up every time. Yes. Can you blame players for thinking, well, I don't want to take that chance? Because that's my that's my future history, done and dusted there and then. That's why a lot of players don't want to take penalty. So you think that that season day, that, that kind of that mentality sort of infected the the, the, the whole team, really? Not the whole team. Um, mm. There were, and the, most of the team to some degree. Mm. <clears throat> to some degree. Um, I can remember having, looking at players like Stevie Clark and looking at each other and going, what is wrong with these people? I mean, yeah, I know they're fighting, but it's not about that. It's about, can we you not know, just do what you're good at all the time? Mm. No point in bottling it, you know, but not wanting the ball. And, but certainly Clark and I wouldn't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not blaming everybody else. It just happens, you know. And you know, the the coach was, you know, the assistant coach, and he wasn't there. Yeah, and he wanted here. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't great influence in the tactics. You know, I liked him as a bloke, but ter- terrible. I just didn't like tactics. It did. I thought they were awful. So it it's never one thing. It's always a number of things, and they all bleed into each other. And before you know it, you're falling down, and it's so easy. It's like it's like the mountain. It's easy to fall down on it. It's dead hard to climb it. <laughs> it's really, really. It's, people forget that mountains are like that, and and playing football and trying to get to the top is exactly like that. And uh, yeah, we've just got a few minutes left, Pat. So, taking on board what you said about always looking forward, never looking back. Are you confident that this, uh, with a number of uh, additions and some departures that the squad that did poorly last season, new coach that you think that it could be a com- they could re- get right back to where they were two or three seasons ago immediately, or is it going to take time? Um, with, with the current grip, it will take time. We'll see what happens. You know who's brought in and who leaves. Indeed, you know, um, we've got our own opinions. I'm the same as any other Chelsea fan. I mean, I'm still. Devastated by the day that we Billy Gilmore left, I thought that was a dreadful mistake. Mm. And I really, I, know, I really do think it's a bad, bad mistake. Now, you know, I'd, and then he was brilliant the night. I know he's brilliant all the time. Right? He's he's in play. Um, I hear that possibility. Kai might be leaving, and I know what people think. But the guy's twenty three; he's going to be absolutely amazing for some team. And I wish it was Chelsea. I really wish it was us. A beautiful player. No, he's not a great striker, but that's not his position. It never has been. So, you know, if we can start making sure we don't make the wrong decisions and, you know, make as many of the right ones, and if Poch does start doing that, and more importantly, is given time. That's all it's down to, given time. No more than that. See, if you don't give time to people that need to mould, you know, I, I personally thought, I, I wouldn't have sacked Potter. That may be one of the few. But it takes a long time to develop something like he's doing. I've watched Stevie Clark in his early days with Scotland. Absolutely brilliant. Now, then, everybody wants him sacked. And if they've listened to everybody, Scotland wouldn't be having the brilliant run in June just now. It takes a while. So, with Poch, let's give him a time. 
we need to give them. And if we do give them the minimum couple of years, there's enough good players there. And we'll, I don't think we'll be relegation further or anything like that. But I'm looking at us and thinking, Potch can organise uh, organizing. He'll get a tune out of them without a doubt in the first season. But there's a difference between getting a tune and uh, singing with the orchestra. Um, I'm hopeful, but it's a hard league now. And when you're a wee bit further down there, it's harder to get the established players. Um, I'm excited by a few. I think Mudrick's going to be brilliant. Absolutely comfortable with that. And I know a lot of people are a bit miffed because uh, he didn't have the best season, but I'm all right with him. He's great. Um, and there's quite a few others, but I, I hope we can remember things like that. Kai's just a fantastic player. He's only 23, 24. He's just about to explode. With a centre forward, and he could play off him with another player. I tell you what, we'd be laughing. I'm absolutely convinced. Well, we've got plenty to look forward to. There's lots of people coming in. Uh, you know, Kunku, Breuer's back. We've got some lots of sorts. I was expecting insights, and I got them. Pat, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to plug the book. It'll be in the um, info uh, on the episode page. And I wish you all the best with the promotion and stuff. And I'll um, I'll try and come along to one of the evenings. Okay, there's another one, Rock and Roll Book Club, in a couple of weeks' time. So then, uh... and get some rest. <laughs> I know. And I, I, I'm actually doing another show after I do this. Um, <laughs> after that, my glass of wine. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Pat. Really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. The famous CFC will be back with more great stories from Chelsea history after this short break. Well, you know what they say about meeting your heroes? Um, I was slightly worried before I met Pat recently when we went to the book launch in Chiswick. Um but he was fantastic. He was insightful. And everything he said then and everything we just heard, it speaks volumes of the man who's got such an insight, such a great moral compass and a mm. set of values that come through everything he does and everything he says. I absolutely adore the man. And I love how he brings all of, because he's had a very varied life. He, he leads a very varied life. Lots of interests in, in all sorts of different spheres. And he bring, he applies that. He's unafraid to apply that to football, which I think he does in his book brilliantly. And um, so I think that brings a real fresh perspective, which is always brilliant to hear. Um, before I forget, well, we must say to listeners, we'll have a link on the uh, the info page for this episode to show where you can meet Pat because he's he's doing, uh, as, as you experienced, Gary, he's doing talks are based around the book book launch uh evenings uh so you uh, and i think around the world to a, to a degree certainly in europe so you know it, it, there's an international connection there and also a link so you can buy his excellent book which is called football and how to survive it in fact i'm just packing for a holiday and this is the first thing that's going in my bag because I've got it last week and I'm saving it to read on a beach in lovely Greece. Oh, stupor, Cardamilli, fantastic. Absolutely, the wonderful Manny Peninsula. Now, <laughs> you've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Brone, and him, Rick Glanville, with very special thanks to our wonderful guest, Pat Nevin. Now, if you like the show, please subscribe and spread the word. We'll be back soon with a whole load more tales from Chelsea history. Come on, you blues. <laughs>